As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to SUP FM, the sport's leading podcast, where we speak to inspiring people from the fastest growing water sport in the world. Our aim is to help you maximise your own experiences of stand-up paddleboarding and to deepen your love of the water as we chat with people from both inside and outside the SUP world. Every episode is designed to inspire, support and provide you with a deeper immersion through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, adventurers, TED speakers and New York Times bestselling authors. If you like what we do, there are plenty of ways to support the podcast, including telling your friends, following us on social media. You can even buy me a coffee on Patreon or you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help others to find us. Whatever you can do, we appreciate it. This episode is part of our Yukon 1000 mini season, where we do a deep dive over several episodes into the ultimate adventure race challenge and the longest paddle race on the planet, where we'll talk to the race organisers, teams and individual paddlers in the lead up, in the start town just ahead of the race and after the finishing line, closely following what many describe as a truly epic odyssey of a race. In this episode, you'll hear more from the race organisers, some updates direct from Whitehorse and part of my interview with the legendary ultra-distant SUP athlete Bart Desvart, where we discussed his own experiences racing the Yukon 1000. If you're listening to this episode at any point near to the date of its release, the race has now started in full and all the teams, the SUP teams who I spoke to in the previous episode, and the kayak and canoeing teams are all on their way, a thousand miles down the Yukon. And if the race is still on, that means that you can still track the teams as they progress. And the link to the tracker is in the show notes. If you do happen to be listening to us after the race has finished, you can still catch up on the final race positions on the Yukon 1000 website, which is yukon1000.org. So that's Yukon and then the numbers 1000.org. And after all this coverage, you may well be thinking about entering and graduating with the 2024 Yukon 1000 intake. And that opportunity to join this select group descending the Yukon will be opening very shortly. So as you'll know, if you've been listening to the other episodes, this race is a technology restricted zone. So in terms of communication on the water, there are no selfies available as you go through the five finger rapids. 
all tech goes into a sealed Ziploc bag at the starting line and is opened again at the finishing line. So all we can tell you about the teams when they're on the water is what we can see from their trackers. That is until they get to the Dalton Highway Bridge in Alaska, which is, of course, the finishing point of their journey. So it's pretty exciting for us because we'll be concentrating on sharing any news and updates from the race on Instagram threads or our email newsletter, but we're not going to get anything back from teams until they've safely crossed the finishing line. So the next episode to this one will be released when everything is done and dusted, and so there might be an episode gap of a week or so. So let's kick off this episode by hearing again from John Frith, the race director, in a part of our chat you won't have heard so far. As we talk in more detail about the structure of the race, including the experience of the paddlers, what they and the organisers are doing in the start town of Whitehorse, and then a dive into what the key stages of the race look like for them as they head down the mighty Yukon. Right, so let's just take the listeners through journey. Um, they arrive in Whitehorse where the race starts. It's low-key start. But um, there's going to be a bit of tension ahead of the start. So what do your days and what do their days look like leading up to the start? So they'll run into the place 24 hours before the race starts. And the, ne- the, the previous 24 hours, they'll, they'll have a race brief off me in uh, downtown in Whitehorse at, at the Sternwheeler in the conference room there. And I'll, I'll give a brief and then I'll give them three or four hours. And then over in the park, we'll do a full kit check. Um, to their satellite comms, their um, spot tracker, and then right down to their kit and their mapping. Um, and that's, um, again, teams, sometimes some teams don't read that right. I'm pretty rigid with that. It's my insurance policy. It's their insurance policy. I've got no issues of pulling teams out at that stage. And a couple of teams, I have to make them re-show that night and give them the warning that, that you mm. ain't on tomorrow until mm. it's sorted. And then they'll do what they do that night, get their head down, sort their admin out. And then the next morning I'll say, listen, at 0730, be here. I'm going to say, stand by, go. And if you're late, you ain't on. So don't be late. And so meet them the next morning, 0730. We have a little ritual. Uh, I sort of do a First Nation blessing down by the river. I read a little poem uh, about the river. And then I um, give them stand by and go. Mm. And, and off they go. The stand-up paddle boards are 24 hours ahead and really – the only reason why this is done, I know other races do this, is because of the lake, mm. really, to just get them across that lake. I've been across that lake a few times, and it's, it, it, it could stop the race before it's even started the race, really. So we've been pretty lucky, but get everybody across that lake, and then uh, and then they're heading towards sort of Carmax is the, the next stop, really. Cross Lake Labarge and towards Carmax mm. into the Yukon proper. So, so Lake Labarge, you mentioned it there. Uh, it's about 30 miles long, I think. It's also hugely exposed. And as you've said, you know, if the weather conditions aren't right, then it's a, a real problem, particularly for stand up paddle boarders, because there's a bigger sort of profile there. So it, what, what's the deal with the weather there? Um, is there a prevailing wind direction? Um, I know that there's been a tailwind before there, but um, or it, it might yeah. just be random. 35 miles and the problem is when you get onto the river depending depending how, how much water flow is in the river i mean i've gone in there and just, i've not been able to get on the, onto the lake and, and have to pull the my boat over the river so mm. into over the river into the um lake so you've got to get onto it and the first the first couple of k's or first 10 to 15 k's are like low water it's really low like sandbar where that water's that that all that um sediment's being pushed into the lake 
then you're going to go right across the lake um, to the east side, and then you're going to stay 200 metres off the east side all the way up until you enter the, to the mouth of the Yukon. So you're right, as you say, it can be perfect like glass, and then you can get halfway and there's waves, big old waves coming up, and you don't know why they're there, but it's such a big lake. At the other end, there's a storm, but it's, you're just not seeing it. There's a slight bend to it, and then you're going to kink right, and then you're going to head towards uh, the river entrance. And like you say, you know, because you're in the wilderness, because it's not been um, really that that sort of chopped into by man, or no one lives up there, you don't see the entrance to the river until you're like maybe 150 meters away, until the natural flow of it. You just can't see this great big river. You're just looking at a wall of pine and yeah. nothing else. You start to doubt whether it's even there. But, and, you know, that's the great thing. And you've got the tree lines pretty low and then goes high. And that's really because stuff hasn't still growing back since the paddle steamers. Mm. You know, they cut those trees down 100 years ago to get all the paddle steamers up and down. But such is the winters that those trees haven't really still growing back yet. It's such a slow growth path for them to get back to full height. So it's all pretty low. And then it, and then it sort of it sort of came back. It's all pretty dense and hard going. And then we've got Five Finger Rapids, and yeah. and that's a pretty spectacular location. And as as you said, sort of depending on the the water flow, that can be quite exciting. This year, I think there's been quite a lot of water down there, hasn't there? I think there's been some yeah. some flooding. So um, I guess you've got your eyes on that at the moment. But you're yeah. not going to be carrying your boats around, are you? This year, it looks like. No, you know, and there was a time last year we considered it. Uh, portaging the boats around um and throwing them in just beyond it but i i just i won't i'll try my best not to do that i'd mm. rather take the jet boat up there and um and sit off and let, let them hope for the best that they get through so yeah the, as you say they'll go through carmax first and there's the only bridge that will come under and that's a little boost for them there's nothing there but it's a civilization their first sign of civilization since they've left mm. you know whitehorse the first time anything man-made and so they'll go through there and like you say, another 20, 30 Ks on, they're going to hit uh, five finger rapids and, and five finger rapids tends to be hammed up a wee bit. You know, I've certainly gone through there holding a brew before um, <laughs> to, to, to going through and it's been pretty, pretty, pretty rough. But there's little things like beyond it is a set of rapids called the rink rapids that everybody doesn't talk about mm. and everybody forgets. But actually last year they were worse than the five finger, but there was a little slip through on the right that you could get through mm. and sort of filtered out on the right. So Get it, it's a great I'm glad they're there because they get the blood going you know mm. and they get everybody it's a good little stop gap where you sort of that day you're like have we got our stuff tied down and yeah. is our admin squared away is the boats tied down is the spare paddles tied down is the bare barrel you know it, it sort of makes teams switch on a wee bit so even if it wasn't there it's great that it is there and they'll get through there and that'll give them a little buzz because it's a real big hurdle that they'll go that wasn't so bad blood going for the rest of the day mm. and they know that it's, and it's also a physical landmark. You know, any any doubts in navigation where you are, yeah. you know where you are now. You've you've just gone through Five Finger Rapids. You know that Dawson City is just under halfway, and you're you're in the race proper. So you tend to get teams when they get there, they're pretty up for it from there on in. They know there's a bit of self confidence built. They've had three nights in the bush. They're starting to get their the game plan together. Mm. Yeah, it serves as a barrier for many things. And then you come through to the next key landmark, which is Dawson City, and. Uh... Dawson City, that was the centre of the Klondike, wasn't it? So it used to be absolutely enormous. But I guess that's a point where you look over the competitors coming through, just check they're in uh, in decent state. Would that be right? Yeah. So sort of the last 100 miles before Dawson, the river's quite braided and mm. quite untidy. And so it's probably the first time you've got to start looking at a map mm. proper uh, and navigating your way through the main currents if you're serious about it. 
and, and if it's flooded, it, it can be pretty rough. Also, you've got the White River comes into it before that. And so your water is no longer beautiful and clear. It's now ash filtered. It's, it's going to play. It's going to play on your administration, play on your water fil- filtration. All that again has got to be working well. Otherwise, you're going to start suffering. So lots of new stuff that's been introduced. Um, and you've got to get to Dawson City. That's your obvious landmark, as you said. Dawson City, you know, in, in the late 1800s was 10,000 people. Now it's, you know, in the winter, it's probably about 300 people tops. Uh, and it's kind of, it was at the start of COVID, this quirky little trendy town up north. I think since COVID, it's struggling a wee bit and sort of gone back a wee bit. Um, mm. uh, and it's struggling, but um, it, it's a cool physical landmark, but it is still really in the wild. An example of that is, you know, last year, just coming through there as a race organ, I was cut off getting in and out because of bushfires. You know, it took everything mm. out, the power power lines, it took them off the grid. Mm. Um, and so just operating from a land perspective, let alone being on the water, it's mm. just as challenging terrain. But like you say, I introduced that for, for, for twofold into the to the race, the, ch- the check there. One, to make people that were on a jolly get mm. out. Yeah. Uh, clearly identify them at this stage and pull them out uh, to keep it a race, to keep it true to what its title is. And the third one is, it, you know, the second point is really going back to what I said at the start, the psychology of being that remote, it will affect people and it mm. does affect people. And they don't know on the race that a K behind them is a team and a K in front around the next bend of the river is a team. Yeah. They don't see that, you know, yeah. they think they're on the moon <laughs> uh, and they, some of them have not seen, some of them get out and they have not seen a single team the whole way, yeah. uh, you know, for seven days or a single person. And so um, that, that gets us, some people relish that and thrive in that, but some people struggle with it, yeah. you know, and also that, you know, digital detox is a real thing. Some people it bites at, you yeah. know, you yeah. know, not, being disconnected and not being able to talk to their family or, or Google the way out of a problem whenever they want, mm. all that's removed. And so, and so, so I just have that visual check to check that everyone's all right. And if I've got doubts, you know, I'll, 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 as I warn teams off, I'll pull you out at that stage. Some teams have had fights, you know, and it hasn't gone well. Yeah. And that was evident last year and they'll, they'll pull out. And yeah. they're just like, this, we're not working as a team. We're not the right pair. Yeah. And that's fine. That's fine. Mm. That's, that's, that's the place to do it, you know, because mm. beyond that, we're just yeah. not getting you out. So, so it serves as that purpose. So Dawson mm. City is that. So unfortunately it's a super cool place. They don't really get to see. They just tank past. Yeah. Um, they don't really get to see it. So, uh, but, but that's the race and that keeps them unsupported. And then um, you move on to the point where you pass into Alaska and there's a, a village called Eagle, which I think serves as the, the border post there. I, I presume that you haven't got a guy in a booth checking passports backwards and forwards. <laughs> no. What's the drill there? They did have the guy checking passports, but he perished in the ice melt. Ah. So, uh, so they, they got rid of that. So they get out there and there's a, there's a sort of building there and, and behind it is a permanent phone box, right. uh, that's linked to the, uh, the beaver creek bordered crossing and so 24 hours sat phone they just ring up they just mm. check in where they are and then they get back in the boats and they go again there's nothing else there really anyway yeah. for them to do or and they're gone again it's kind of nice to get out stretch your legs for 100 yards yeah. get back in your boat get oh. back in your boat and go but again last year was a real challenge because there was a log jam there the river was moving particularly fast it was really high we're struggling to get out so um it serves a couple of things for me they've obviously got to cross it's crossing into another country uh, mm-hmm. And they've got to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Americans, more than most, are pretty serious about their borders. Yeah. Um, 
they've got to do that. And also I can ring those guys and just check up on, you know, are we all good? Um, and they're all through and I can mm. see them on the tracker anyway, but, um, and they'll get through. So they'll not really hang about in there and they're off again, um, heading down the river and that's them into Alaska. Mm. I mean, they'll cross the border anyway and see the U S flag flying randomly on the sort of on the shoreline. Mm. Um, that's quite so random. That's the point. So that, just there. Yeah. And then the area, which is quite fascinating after all of these fantastic pine woods and, and beautiful canyons is the flats. Um, which is all meandering and I guess that I mean navigation is key wherever you are but that that would be a place where I guess the river changes to quite a large degree from a year to year yeah it, it, it is a game-changing place and last year it really showed on the on the race as well teams that were just kind of just there popped out right up front you know teams if you haven't got your ducks in a row at this stage mm. if you haven't done your due diligence on your mapping your waypoints whatever you've zoomed in on and produced and printed and you're not looking at them or you haven't been looking at your maps previously to build that navigational confidence then it's going to come unstuck at this stage because it's the water is dissipated over a large area um and it is thousands of little islands and log jams and currents and channels and, and trying to stay in that deep water main current cha- channel mm. of the river it's really, really hard to do. It shifts. That's mm-hmm. the problem. It shifts. You can only go off the last imagery that's taken from space, right? And then that depends on how much water was in there, depending on what you're looking at. Yeah. And so, and then you've got the ice melt that happened in May. So what did that do to the place? You just don't know. So, you know, and literally on the race, people going down there are the people, some of the people going down there for the first time that year. Yeah. So that, that are looking through it. So that are pushing their way through it. So you, you're, you're taking on the unknown and, yeah, you won't see anybody there. It's, it looks like a war zone as well. You know, it's just trees piled up. It's just ruined the place. And I remember when I went through for the first time, the water was really high over a lot of these. So I was like paddling through a pine forest and stuff. And I was like, oh my God, can this be right? Really doubting all your navigational skills and abilities. But, you know, I, I just knew that, that the water wasn't lying. It was pulling me downhill towards sea. Yeah. That was the only thing, that was the only thing that, I, that I took comfort in. But what you don't want to do is take one of the side trips that is going to take you into a beaver dam mm. or take you inland mm. further and off, off, off your track. So the, the, the real fear is that you're going to, you can miss a day. Mm. I think the team, I, the year I did, there was, there was a couple of chaps in the Royal Marines, great blokes. And they, they'd done that. They took a trip that took them inland. They lost a day in the race essentially. So, there are many risks, and then ultimately the risks are that it's just a dangerous place that trying to get you out there if it goes south, yeah. it's probably not going to happen. You know, it's 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 a big challenge. So it, it, it's a real wake up call. And, and like like we were saying before, when you get there, you're there now four or five days without much sleep. Mm-hmm. You're fatigued. You're tired. You're worn out. You're losing weight. Your nutrition game is it, it, no matter what you're doing, you're burning sort of seven eight thousand calories a day. You're not you're not repl- you're not filling that back up. So it's starting to burn now. So there's a lot going on and you've got to be at your highest alert and switched on and working functionally as a pair really well. So that's, that's the, for me, that's the win and the loss place, the flats. And then you, uh, you get through to the finishing post, um, Dalton highway bridge. Uh, I happen to know that there aren't any brass bands or, you know, big, uh, big events and celebrations going on there. It's all sort of pretty low key. Um, but you know, as you say, you, you get there, you know, job done, um, you, you know, you mentioned about nutrition and so on. I understand one guy lost about, was it seven kilos during his, his journey down there? I mean, that's quite yeah. some extreme weight loss, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely, 
Yeah, so we get them out at the end. We'll see them coming down. We'll get them at the end. We do a little thing. Um, I bring a, a, a pale ale up from the from from White Horse called Yukon Gold. Give them one of them. I give them a sort of I do a bit of a military gesture. Give them this thing called a coin. They put it in their pocket. They look at it mm. later on. Um, it's an old Roman thing. Mm. Uh, when they're on their own, and then really just send them off up to this this place where they make these burgers out of like a cow. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty special. It's yeah. like proper pretty you know like four thousand calorie burger and chips Fantastic. getting them in there get them get them fed get them get them their head down and the next available transport i just get them out of there because there's just nothing there yeah um and there's no point hanging around so they, people want to hang around for the teams coming through but the best thing for them is just get them out of there when it, when it can fill up a bus just ship them out yeah because we're now talking days apart yeah uh, in, in their sort of groups uh, get them out there send them back to fairbanks where they just get them in a hotel where they just want to sleep Right, eat as many calories as they can, sleep yeah. again, and then get on a plane and go home. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty it's a pretty low key finish, um, it, but it's a really tight community even past after race. Everybody yeah. keeps in contact. Yeah. I regularly see people that have done the race yeah. um, that are over visiting other people. Yeah, and then the great little stories is that stuff that materialises after the race that you didn't know about people what they were dealing with in the backgrounds, like you know. The finding Ben story. I don't know if you've seen that about the guy from New Zealand who yeah. who'd had a serious brain issue, brain mm. brain injury. You know, you don't you don't know this stuff, and then they sort mm. of it all. It's like being a Catholic priest at the end as the race yeah. director. They climb <laughs> up the beach and tell you all these stuff that you know. And so, uh, whether it be uh, that they're not well or they've seen a you know, as last year we they saw Bigfoot a team. Yeah, they saw Bigfoot. I saw that report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, they've had, like, they've had a lot of time to. Uh, to be in their own heads, haven't they? I mean, it's like a, a perfect Buddhist meditation with a bit more pain, possibly. But, uh, but yeah, and and the uh, I guess the hallucinations can make it a bit more complex as well. Yeah, yeah. I definitely saw a gorilla once. Sat sat there on the beach looking at me, but uh, I think it was a log. Well, but um, I don't, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it at all. We'd like to thank Baltic Life Jackets for returning as episode sponsors this season. Baltic designed and developed their SUP Elite PFDs to solve two key problems facing stand-up paddlers. The slim down front panel makes it easier to climb back on your board and the ergonomic cutaways around the arms accommodate the SUP stroke, allowing you to paddle freely without restriction to the point that you hardly notice you're even wearing it. The SUP Elite also incorporates storage and the option to add a hydration pack, which is perfect for the summer. So check out the SUP Elite and the SUP Pro PFD at your local stockist or at supfmpodcast.com forward slash Baltic. Looking to take your performance to the next level? Then look no further than Ocean Specific. Introducing the Strike Series VRX, the ultimate SUP paddle designed for maximum power and efficiency. Its firm flex shaft optimizes energy transfer for efficient paddling. Its double dihedral blade ensures an unrivaled grip on the water, boosting your surfing, racing and touring performance. Ocean Specific sponsors and promotes UK surf and race culture, supporting athletes and adventure racing teams, including the Shack team competing in this year's Yukon 1000. And they're committed to providing professional grade equipment at an accessible price. Visit oceanspecific.com today to explore their range of high performance paddles, hardware and apparel. And the links to all of our sponsors are in the show notes. So now just put yourself in the place of those paddlers waiting for the starting gun to sound. 
when you arrived in Whitehorse International Airport, you could see already from the air as you flew in the mountains and the river and the remoteness of the terrain. And now you've got two days to think, maybe sitting by the river, maybe checking your kit for the hundredth time, or just sitting with your thoughts ahead of the longest paddle race in the world. How would you be feeling at that point? Well, if you're Craig Sawyer from Team Shack, the answer would be pretty positive, actually. And earlier this week, Craig sent me this update. Craig here from Team Shack racing on the Yukon 1000 2023 on stand-up paddleboards. It's now Thursday lunchtime here in Whitehorse, 12.30. Um, we've just finished at race briefing as a sub-team or as a sub-teams. Um, it looks like uh, there were originally four sub-teams set to race this year, um, and it looks like we've got two no-shows. The uh, Australians and the Americans, uh, for whatever reason, are not here. Um, uh, dropouts happen every year on this race uh, beforehand. Uh, it could be illness, it could be injury, uh, change of heart, change of mind. Um, but for whatever reason, it's going to be two sub teams and both of those from the UK. Um, so I guess we're guaranteed at least first or second. Um, being an optimist and as a pessimist, we're either going to come first or last. The race briefing, uh, the organisers run through the route, uh, the logistics. Uh, we look at some of the challenges and the key moments along the race route. What happens if things go wrong? How evacuation works? Um, we talk about wildlife, but in fairness, the, the biggest risks to ourselves are us when we're tired, when we're hallucinating, when we're sleep deprived. So a lot of conversation, a lot of the presentation is around you and your teammate, um, because ultimately, as we know, that's where the strength comes from on this race. Um, the river is looking great at the moment. It's flowing. It's not as high as last year. Uh, but it's higher than normal by the looks of things. So it, it's not running as fast, but it's still running well. But also being lower, it does mean that there's more opportunities to find safe places to camp each day. Uh, there's sandbars, there's islands that weren't there last year, um, and they do present an opportunity to find somewhere a little easier um, in those hours when we need to come in. Because we have a mandatory stop of six hours, we must stop between the hours of 10 at night and midnight. So we have a two-hour window to decide when to stop once we're happy we've found somewhere safe. Once we're happy, once we've checked for, for bear prints or animal prints or leftover carcasses of fish or any, any sign that we won't be alone in that place, um, we, once we make a call, we start our timer and we have six hours. And we cannot get back on the water for six hours. Um, we, can, we can stay on there for seven hours if we want, but uh, six hours is the minimum. But... You don't want to be staying on there for, for any more than six. You know, this race is about being on that water as long as possible in that 18-hour period. So we've got our own little tricks up our sleeves. I say tricks up our sleeves. We've got processes to, to minimise the need to have to stop um, at any time during the day. So, yeah, so the sub briefing done. Um, and then we have kit check this afternoon down in the park near the start line uh, where we have to effectively show the organisers all of the mandatory kit lists, make sure that they're happy there. Show them our mapping, our GPS, make sure they're happy that we understand how to find ourselves on a map and how to translate our location information to either the emergency services or anyone that might need it. 
Uh, we do a satellite phone check um, to make sure the organisers are happy we know how to use it um, and that we have the organiser's number and they have our satellite number. And we do the spot tracker check. So the spot tracker is the piece of kit, the GPS device that will be pinging uh, every 10 minutes uh, when we're paddling uh, and will be what anyone following the race will be able to see um, when they're following us on the race. Um, the tracker goes live fairly soon um, and... It's quite interesting. You can follow us, see where we are, see key stats like our average moving pace, um, our estimated time of arrival at some of the key... I say checkpoints, they're not checkpoints, they're kind of milestones along the race. So that link will go live and then we can share that. So once the kit briefing's done, then it's a proper proper game face on. Um, as Team Shack, our plan is to come back to our hotel. Um, we've been here all week, so we know it very well. We've uh, managed to... Uh, get the hotel to give us the conference room for the afternoon evening so we can inflate our boards and load them up and check everything do all our last minute checks but in the comfort of a conference room which is effectively about 20 meters from our hotel room uh, and we're out of the sunshine because it's really hot here today we had a lot of rain yesterday Um, today is uh, you know the sun is shining it's going to probably hit 28 29 this, this afternoon but we can do our final kit checks make sure that everything is tied down tightly everything um is ready to go and then we'll leave that overnight in the conference room and then tomorrow morning head down to the start line probably six o'clock 6 30 tomorrow morning um load the boards up on the water ready for a 7 30 a.m start weather forecast obviously things can change but at the moment it's not going to be as hot it looks as it was for the river quest it's still warm um, and the further up we get into the flats, the warmer it gets. Um, so, but the the lake at the moment is looking like a small, a little tailwind, which is ideal. Um, but you know, who knows? It can change so quickly as well. And it's there's so many microclimates up there, and you just don't know what you're going to get. Uh, but at the moment, we're happy with everything. Um, there's some cutoff times for the for the for for everyone. But we have a cutoff time of Daw- the halfway cutoff time for us is we have to reach Dawson City, um, but on the 18th of July by 23:59, which effectively works out at 70 hours, seven zero hours of paddling when you factor in our mandatory six-hour stops. Um, for the geeks of you, that means that we have to be averaging over that period a minimum of 10.21 kilometers an hour. Um, what does that mean? Not much really, because the lake is going to be slow. The lake is, you know, 50, 60 kilometers long. Um, but then the river gets faster after. So you can't, you know, it's good to have that number in mind. Um, but, you know, you, you can't focus on that on a daily basis. You just basically need to be on the water for 18 hours, paddling as best as you can in a, a pace you think you can maintain for that period of time. So the cutoff, yeah, is the 18th for the 7th, 2359. Once we go through Dawson, assuming we make that cutoff, which of course we will, we then basically it's a race to the finish. Um, and the cutoff for the SUPS is a 23rd of July at 2000. So that's it. That gives us our, our goals there and um, what we're aiming for. Um, we're Team Shack. We are Team One for the tracker. And the Renegade Moose Chasers, Kim and Martin, are Team Two uh, on the race tracker. So it should be pretty straightforward uh, to see us. So yeah that's it now it's uh getting close um and we can't wait um little update on some of the other things going on in whitehorse uh teams have been arriving unlike last year we saw a lot of teams around town quite a lot 
in the week beforehand, but there's been a lot of teams lying low. Uh, I think a lot of people haven't arrived until either last night or the night before. So it's not been as easy to catch up with uh, potential race uh, participants, but Whitehorse is a, is a busy, thriving town and people have been out doing kit checks, buying last-minute things. Uh, the canoes, oh, canoes and kayaks, particularly where they hire them, have been obviously adapting them, the canoes and kayaks to suit them and their team. Um, I think we're quite lucky on SUP boards, to be honest, that we don't have to worry about tweaking and all that kind of stuff other than choosing your board, your fin and your paddle. Beyond that, you know, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting seeing particularly kayak teams looking at steering pedals and play and, you know, what happens. And so, so yeah, so they're doing all those at the moment. And they start on the Saturday. So, yeah, that's an update from Whitehorse. Um, it's now nearly one o'clock, and I need to make my way down to the park, ready for the kit inspection. One of the themes of the Yukon 1000 is the team, and it's something that we've discussed with all of our guests this season. And a race of this sort will really test relationships and potentially destroy them as well. But what's clear from a safety and a practical point of view is that the choice of teammate is the most important decision you can make. And back in episode 97, I discussed this with guest Bart Zwart. And if you haven't yet listened to the full episode, I really recommend it because in the world of SUP and ultra endurance, he is unquestionably the GOAT. And it was a huge thrill when I finally got to speak to him. And when I speak, I generally try and chat by video. And I was speaking to him on his boat, which had the most fantastic and distracting backdrop because he was anchored up in the waters of the Caribbean and just off a beautiful tropical island. So so just coming back to Yukon, um, we chatted to Ike France back in 2015, I think before you did the Yukon 1000 and uh, he was your partner when you won it in 2018. And one of the key differences between the Quest and the uh, the 1000 is, is the distance. But you also have to complete it as a team. And I guess that brings its own challenges. Could you just talk about the format of that um, Yukon 1000 race and, and how you can develop a partnership in that extreme environment? Because basically you're doing 17, 18 hours of paddling per day, every day for for eight days. How do you manage to harmonize your relationship on, on something that extreme? Yeah, I actually thought about that the last couple of days because we have a friend paddling in the Yukon River Quest right now. And and uh, we told her to hook up with other paddlers um, just for our own mental strength and, and safety. Uh, but it's hard because you um, if you want to pedal with someone you basically do a commitment that you pedal together, but there's, there's times when you think like, oh, I'm, I'm way stronger. I want to pedal away and make sure that I'm, I'm going to finish in time. And there's the times the other way around. And I, I, I normally don't like that feeling. I like to, when I feel good, I want to go. And when I'm not too good, I'll see how I manage. Um, I, I might pedal with other people, but, I still want to have the ability to stop or go faster if I want to, you know, if you need a break or go faster if you want to go faster. But with Ike, it was a little different because the race is like that. Everybody has to stick together. There's always two people in the team. And Ike was the ideal partner. Um, and we made a few basic rules that we said that we're not going to, you know, if one is not so strong, we're not going to pedal in front of him half a board length. With which I normally don't like much because it 
gives the feeling to the other person that is uh, he's always a little too slow. Uh, we, we didn't do that. We said if, if one is not feeling good, um, either we tow in, which we in the end we never did, or we're just going to slow down and pedal together. We, we mm-hmm. adapt to the, to the slower pedaler, basically. And the, the basic task of putting up your tent and making food and things like that, we divided before we started, mm-hmm. which worked out great. And we had a very similar speed. So in the end, it was a, um, a great partnership. It, it worked out perfectly, uh, which wasn't the case for all teams we saw later. Yeah, no, I can imagine, particularly in those later stages when uh, when the, the exhaustion takes over. You only had six hours, I think, which was sort of mandatory stopping time. So you had a lot to do during that period, get your tents up. You know, potentially there would be some uh, hostile wildlife around there as well. Hopefully you didn't uh, get any traces of bears when you were camping. Yeah, we had trace of bears. Um Sometimes we even uh, went to the beach to set up our tent and decided not to, to put up our tent there because there were too many tracks and too many fresh tracks. Uh, there was a team who actually saw tracks, went to another place, put up the tent where they didn't see any tracks. Then more, next morning they woke up and there were a lot of tracks just around the tent. Wow. <laughs> so, they're like, ooh, they were here. Yeah. Um, but um. Yeah, the, it, 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 it's part of it, but it's, it's not as dangerous as it sounds. Um, as long as you keep the food away from your tent. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you see kids, you know, kid bears, you, you yeah, get in the you opposite wanna, direction. Yeah, you go somewhere else. So it was, it, it, it's okay, but it, it, it makes it, uh, yeah, it's a new dimension in, in, in adventure and in racing mm-hmm. because of it. Okay, so that's Bart's experience of the Yukon. And when Bart talks, we listen. He's just an incredible athlete. And although some of his expeditions might have been a little sketchy, he comes to all of his trips with a huge amount of experience and time on the water, which means he's qualified to take risks that others can't. So this is a shorter episode. And while we're expecting to skip a week as we wait for the racers to arrive across the finish line, we'll continue to bring you updates from the race through Instagram, through threads, which we're enjoying, and also through our email newsletter, which you can sign up to by going to supfmpodcast.com forward slash list. We've obviously talked a lot about the two remaining SUP teams in the race, but we also wanted to throw a shout out to all of the competitors this year across canoes and kayaks, wishing them all good luck. And there are some incredibly inspiring teams in there. Ashley and Gary of Team Target Azalea being one of them. Ashley's been doing a lot of media ahead of the race in the UK, and I challenge you to listen to his story with a dry eye. He's a truly inspirational man. I also wanted to pull out a particular mention for another British team we've been in contact with, which is Fortune Favours the Brave team. And Nick and Dan are a couple of incredible humans who are taking their canoe down the route too. Morning, Simon. Uh, We're at the start line, 35 minutes to go. We've got a Timmy Hortons. We've got a a breakfast wrap and a coffee. Uh, Nick's on his uh, second Gatorade. Um, it's uh, it's beautiful here, beautiful temperature. We're just in a sort of a t-shirt or long sleeve shirt. 
and uh, just seen a lovely wild fox uh, just pop past us. It's been an amazing experience so far, flying out via Seattle, and then we flew via Vancouver up to Whitehorse, and Whitehorse is just a wonderful, wonderful town. It's just really beautiful. Uh, the people are really nice, and especially everyone around the, the event. So there's lots of veterans who've come down uh, to give us their, their top tips, and it's been really lovely. And uh, we're now, we're set. We're just about to probably get called over by John for him to uh, to give us a few words, and uh, we, we'll push off, and we've got a 1,000 miles to go. Sorry, that was just me uh, finishing off some food. Final bit of um, home food, I guess. Um, yeah, I think Dan's summed it up. It's nervous apprehension now, standing at the start line. Boat's packed, we've done all we can. Now just time to get on the water and leave it all out there. It's been an amazing journey, really, um, you know, quite incredible. I was reflecting on it last night, you know, for Dan and I over the last three years. And so it, it means a lot to be here today, you know, with Dan and to take this on together. So time to go get it done. Really obviously grateful for all the families for supporting us. It's probably taken over in some way of our lives for a while. So certainly lots of love to uh, Tiff and Amanda, Thomas, Lilia and Ella Amelia and for all their support. And we'll look forward to seeing them soon. But um, it's um, a phenomenal race, really nice feel about it. Lovely to be out here and, you know, seeing the sub guys go off yesterday. Looks like they're already doing well and um, battling on. I think Dan and I um, paddleboard a lot actually at home. And it's probably most of the training we've been doing for this because it's the only way we can sort of uh, paddle, I guess, solo. But um, looking at it out here, I certainly wouldn't want to be taking it off in a paddleboard. So um, hats off to those guys. And um, hopefully uh, we'll see them at some stage along the journey, but wishing them fair winds, uh, which uh, will be ever needed on their side. Yeah, the time is now, as they say. So we've raised a good bit of money supporting um, YPI and reduce our carbon, which is always the, um, I suppose, the driver behind this. You know, doing it for a cause, but also the purposeful side of trying to crack on and do something positive and prove to ourselves and others and go immerse ourselves in uh, the wilderness for a while. But yeah, here we go, race ready. And just sort of follow on from that, there's um, a lot of this and speaking to the veterans who've completed at the race or as we're looking at it, it's really a challenge and as uh, my wife explains to the, my, my children when they keep saying daddy you need to win winning is completing it's uh, it's getting out into this amazing countryside and enjoying the digital detox that nick and i both need getting away from our mobile phones yeah i would say we're nervous we've hopefully got the mental resilience we know it's going to hurt for the first two days because uh, our paddling experience uh, is very, very limited. Uh, we've done five hours this year and we need to do 18 hours uh, a day. So that's really going to uh, test us. But we, um, we're quietly confident. Um, we know each other pretty well. We know that we can uh, mock each other. Uh, we know we're going to have some dark times, but it's all going to go wrong. Anyway, hope you get to follow us and uh, speak uh, when we get back in eight days, inshallah. And we'll share their Instagram in the show notes alongside a whole bunch of other useful Yukon 1000 race related stuff. And before we go, we've got a final word from Craig, who's been an ever present throughout this Yukon 1000 season. So no one more appropriate to leave you in the hands of. So good luck to everyone competing this year. Just like the paddlers, we will see you on the other side. But in the meantime, here's Craig. So there we have it. Kit check complete. Both sub teams sail through the kit inspection with John. Um, 
In fact, I think John looked quite impressed at both teams and our, our kit setup, um, our equipment, um, and how it's all beautifully packed uh, for paddle boards. Um, I think actually, we surprise a lot of people uh, with doing a race such as this on paddle boards. Um, every time we bump into a kayak or canoe team and we tell them we're on SUPS, the look they give us is uh, <laughs> like, why would you want us? What, uh, why, how, what? You know, they don't quite understand, you know, things like, you know, how could you stand up for 18 hours a day? And, you know, all I can think about is <laughs> how can you sit down for 18 hours a day? At least we can move around, we can stand up, sit down, stretch out on the board. And then people are like, you know, where do you put your kit? Well, I think we've proven that a, a SUP board is actually quite a great place to do an expedition on. And with some proper planning and great kit, there's a lot you can take uh, in a very efficient way, which hopefully you'll see um, post-race with uh, the videos and stills and stuff from the event. So both sub-teams, both from the UK, both in the Yukon 1000, totally pumped, ready to go. It's Thursday evening. The race starts tomorrow at 7.30 a.m. This feels a little bit like waiting to go to the gallows. I wish we could just get going now. Thanks, Simon, for all your support, mate. It means a lot to all of us to know you guys are following along. Um, and we can't wait to share the stories with you when we get back.